0: We are in Acts, uh, part of chapter 21 and into chapter 22. We will have it on the screen, but if you have your Bibles, even if you have your phone, let's open it up to be in God's Word together this morning. Um, And as you're turning there, or if you already have your Bibles open I need your help with something. Chapter 22, your Bibles or at least most of them should have those like little headers that describe the section we're about to get into. What does the header above chapter 22 in Acts say for you? Anybody got it? Jordan's got it. What is it? Nothing. Anybody have a header? Nothing? What was it? Paul speaks to the people. What else? I heard someone else over here. Nothing? Anybody have Paul's defense? No, that's just my version. Interesting. Uh, So, As I looked um, at a couple different uh, translations, they said different things. I like Paul speaks to the people better than Paul's defense. Um, One of mine, I have an NET translation, and it titled it Paul's defense. And actually later in this passage, we'll see Luke, as he's recounting this uh, event, talk about Paul's defense and use that verbiage. And I don't know about you, but the second I see that word, I automatically, like the young people say, get triggered. Um, There's something, baggage, that I attach to that word defense, both with like Christian community, right? Like, I think in, 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 in our minds, thinking about church, when we talk about defending the gospel or defending faith, that means one thing, but also just in our world period, that word defense or defensiveness seems to be something that is on the increase. Stay still. I don't know if I can. I'll try. <laughs> um, seems to be increasing. I actually uh, ended up Uh, seeing a counselor for the first time last year and have been going to see this guy for a while now. And part of the reason for it is I noticed coming out of the pandemic this increase in defensiveness in my soul and in my spirit where people I had even been in relationship with for years and years and years, I'd sit down with them to get coffee. And the second we start to talk about that topic or this thing that people debate I just felt this thing in my chest start to rise and be like, am I about to lose this friend right now? I don't know if anyone else felt that. Or you get a phone call from someone who doesn't normally call you, and you're like, oh, no, what's this going to be about? You get an email from someone, and you're afraid to open it, and then you see it's long. No offense to anyone sends long emails. You're like, oh, gosh, what are we diving into? I wonder if we need to check our baggage with that word this morning as we see Luke use it in this section talking about Paul. We'll actually see as Paul's return to Jerusalem, this is the first, as some call it, the first of his five defenses. But what we see as Paul's defense this morning as he speaks to the people is that it's one saturated in compassion. And in no way is it retaliatory, even though he could have. There's false accusations that are happening against Paul in this moment. But instead, what we find is an explanation and an invitation to hear and see what God has done in his life. So where we're picking up from where we were last week, or if you're just joining us and you're a visitor this morning, welcome. We're glad to have you here. We're working through Acts, and Paul has just returned to Jerusalem the hub for God's chosen people. And other believers, other Christians, have begged him to not return. There's even been warnings from the Holy Spirit saying, if you go to Jerusalem, there will be trouble, persecution, and death waiting for you, Paul. But for whatever reason... Either out of, um, out of being stubborn or out of this compassion or maybe a mixture of both, Paul goes back to Jerusalem. And we see when he gets there, he's greeted by James and the other believers that are in the area. And they say, hey, Paul, there have been these rumors swirling around you around here saying that you're telling people to do away with the Mosaic law. So we've come up with this plan. There's four guys from our church here who are these devout Jewish men, but also they're believers in Christ. They're gonna go take this vow... And we're not sure what this vow is. There's a, Greg talked last week, there's a couple different options it could be, but Luke doesn't seem to care about it enough to make it known to the readers. There's a vow that they're going to undergo where they end up going through this purification, cleansing process in the temple. A haircut comes with it, apparently, as like a thing. And Paul, they're like, hey, pay for those haircuts and go through the process of this vow. And this is going to take days. And Paul, even though he doesn't need to go through this to prove himself to anyone, he chooses to submit himself so that he can clear his name as much as possible. And that's where we pick up in chapter 21, starting in verse 27. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, "'Fellow Israelites, help us! This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law in this place.'" And besides, he brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple." So the rumors, we can start to see the hub of some of these rumors in these devout, Jewish, um, zealous, passionate people who one day notice that Paul is in the temple. And here comes the accusations. Uh, And Luke even clues us in that these accusations are not valid. He says, they assumed that they knew what Paul had done. Um, Apparently, they didn't know the age-old adage, what happens when you assume, yet um, they're in Jerusalem. Or maybe they would have not assumed what happened there. But they they implement the one thing that I remember from my philosophy class in college. Um, And if you're here and you're a philosophy major, just let me have this one. I didn't learn much in school. Like, I was not a good student. So Don't tell me if I get this totally wrong. Uh, Maybe gently later. Uh, But what they do is they implement the fallacy of affirming the consequent, where they know that Paul is traveling with this non-Jewish man, Trophimus. They see Paul in the temple. And so they say, they they, they make the affirmation then, well, if Paul's traveling with Trophimus and Paul went into the temple, then Trophimus went into the temple with Paul right? They make this assumption based off a couple details that they know. They come to this place and to this conclusion that actually isn't true. Because according to the law, there was a section of the temple that the non-Jewish people, the Gentiles, could come and worship in the outer courts. But there was inner courts, where Paul was now, that they claimed this, and this was against the Mosaic law, they claimed that Paul had brought a Gentile into that area, thus breaking the law and thus um, justifying the rumors that they had that he tells people to break the Mosaic law. But all this is based off of an assumption. Let's keep reading and see what happens in verse 30. The whole city was aroused and the people came running from all directions, seizing Paul. They dragged him from the temple and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commanders and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him, Paul, and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another. And since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great, he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting, get rid of him. As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, may I say something to you? Do you speak Greek? He replied. Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the wilderness some time ago? Which, by the way, Luke, could we know a little more about that? That sounds really interesting. Paul answered, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people just pause for a second and recognize the brutality of this scene. Paul is in there going through with this vow with these four other guys, even though he doesn't need to do it because of these false rumors that are going on around him. And the second this group of people sees Paul in the temple, they rush at him, go into the temple, drag him out, slam the gates, and then proceed to try and beat him to death. Like for us, the equivalent to that to some degree is like the day you're getting baptized. A group of people see you're at a church and all of a sudden a mob runs in and grabs the person that's about to get dunked and rips them out into the field and starts beating that person to death. I'd think somewhere in there, that's probably breaking the Mosaic law too. I don't know. I'm not, um, (laughs) I don't know it front, front and back, but how awful. And then it takes the Roman soldiers, again, we've seen in Acts over and over again, God uses the most unlikely people to be a way of salvation, a way of saving in his sovereignty to save Paul's life in this moment as they go to break things up. And even as they're trying to pull Paul out of it and figure out what's the truth here, people are just shouting whatever they want to shout. Nobody actually knows what's going on. There's just mob mentality And it makes me think of a scene from like some zombie show or movie where people are like reaching in with one thing on their mind, just kill him. And it's like they're trying to rip him to pieces as the soldiers have to carry Paul, I'm assuming above their heads or something like that to get him to safety. And these are supposed to be God's chosen people. And Paul's drug back to the barracks. He's bound in chains, even though like, he's at, he probably is close to death at this point. And then another assumption happens about him. This Roman officer is like, well, based off, this is what I think, based off how these people responded to you, you must be this Egyptian guy that led these 4,000 assassins like, out in the desert, right? And he's like, no, actually, I'm, I, I know Greek. I'm a Jew, too. Here's where I'm from. And here's the crazy thing to me. Paul, in this moment, when he finally has some safety, he says, Would you let me speak to them? Because in this moment, I believe what Paul sees here as he looks out at the crowd as we're about to read, he sees a bunch of people that are just like how he used to be. He sees people that are passionate, they're zealous. They claim to love the law of the Lord. And yet, their zeal, their passion is misaligned. And they've totally missed it. And Paul, moved by compassion and what God has done in his life, he wants to speak to these people like he's speaking to himself before he knew Jesus. Let's keep reading. Verse 40. After receiving the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. When they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Then Paul said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. I stuttered under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of your ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison, as the high priest and all the council themselves can testify. And I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. Paul says, I get your passion. I get your zeal. I was just like you, and yet... I was so wrong. I was so off. And let me share my defense, which spoilers, it's just Paul's testimony that he shares as a defense. He doesn't end up debating the law with them. He doesn't end up like trying to justify his actions. He just testifies to what he has seen and heard. Now later, yes, does Paul is Paul pretty good at debating? Totally. Can he, can he go back with the best of them to the, the Old Testament scriptures and see, show how it points to Jesus? Yes, but in this moment, he chooses to just share with them what God has done in his life. As Paul looks out at the crowd, he sees people that are passionate. He sees people that are zealous, people that are bold, people with tenacity. Tenacity. I believe he engages what I want to call a gospel-saturated imagination to imagine, what if these people are like me and God brings them to know him? How might they be used for the kingdom? That tenacity, that boldness, their zeal, their passion, what if that, even though it's misaligned now, what if that was used for God's kingdom? And I'd ask you, brothers and sisters, when we see non-believers that get all up in arms about so many different things, things they're willing to die for, causes that they love, that they will put above anything else, do we view them in the same way, saying, what if that person believed? How might God use them for the kingdom? How might God use them to bring about kingdom justice? How might God use them to bring people into the fold that might never have been a part of his kingdom if God didn't choose to use this person? What if they surrendered to Christ and he was their passion? He was the one they were zealous for. How might God use their creativity to further his kingdom for them? Is that how we view our lost people in our lives? I wonder if Paul looks at the crowd and he knows how God has transformed him and wonders, I know he can do it for them too. And that's why he goes on to share. And here we get another run through of Paul's story of his meeting with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And he includes a couple more details that we didn't get at the first drive by back earlier in Acts. Verse 6 of 22. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord, I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they didn't understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord, I asked. Get up the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light Had blinded me. Jesus says to Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus so identifies with his people, with his church. The persecution of them is the persecution of him. And here, as Paul stands before them as one now persecuted, he says similarly, You think you're just persecuting me, Paul, but you are actually coming up against the God of the universe that you claim to worship and to be passionate for and to love and to be devoted to. Don't make the same mistake that I did. Verse 12. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. Then he said, The God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all people of what you have seen and heard. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking to me. Quick, he said, leave Jerusalem immediately because the people here will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, these people know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were willing to kill him. Then the Lord said to me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Ananias' words to Paul, you will be his witness to what you have seen and heard. We get a a couple snapshots of Paul's story that we didn't have before. Yes, Paul was baptized too. And what a day to be there present for his baptism as he too needed to know my sins have been washed white as snow by jesus the only one who can save because we see that paul goes on to recount that he struggled with what he had done he's like i'm supposed to be one of these people now they're my brothers and sisters and i'm the one who sent them away to their deaths i'm the one who imprisoned them they'll never accept me and he wrestles in prayer with god in the midst of that and The beautiful irony of this moment is that here's Paul now. God sends him away to the Gentiles outside of Jerusalem, but here's Paul back in Jerusalem now. And who is it that dearly loves him and doesn't actually want him to go to Jerusalem because they believe he will die? It's the very people he used to persecute. They are now his family. And who is it that wants him dead? It's his previous family, the religious elite, the people that were zealous, the people that he used to call brothers in the synagogues. They're the people that want him dead. And we see another demonstration of the gospel, that the power of the gospel is that Jesus can turn a a friend into an enemy and an enemy into a friend because of his word that pierces through bone and marrow, dividing soul from flesh. And even separating those that once were close, now bringing together those that used to be so different from one another. Here is Paul, now fulfilling what Ananias spoke over him. And and he's fulfilled it over and over again. But here in Jerusalem... As Ananias, when Paul first believed, said, you will be his witness to what you have seen and heard, that is exactly what Paul is doing in this moment where he was just almost killed and where these people still want to kill him. Paul looks at a crowd of people trying to kill him and God has so shifted Paul's perspective that he sees this as an opportunity to share who God is and what God has done in his life. Testimony is very powerful, but if you come back in two weeks after Easter, uh, we'll see that the people don't receive his testimony. They reject him further. Uh, Sometimes testimony does not have the effect we long for it to when we look at people who we know need Jesus and we say, this is what he's done in my life. Would you believe too? He can do it for you. The night that I first believed in Jesus, I think it was the next day or the day after, I reached out to two of my closest friends that we had grown up in church together, but we had all walked away from the faith at one point or another. And I sat them down and I told them what God had done and God had just shifted and done some amazing things in in my life at that point. And I I told them everything because I was like, I want you guys to believe too. And after I was done, one of my friends said, Matt, that's great. It happened for you that way but it didn't happen for us. They could see the change in me. They could see the, the, the light that now I was running after, similar to Paul's companions who were with him, that could see the light, but they didn't actually hear the voice of God. Their ears were closed. Their hearts were closed to respond to his voice. But testimony also can lead to beauty and truth and life. And this morning, I thought it would be an awesome opportunity for me to be done preaching, shortest ever, and for you to hear from some of your brothers and sisters here at Harvest about the testimony that God has given them. Just a snapshot, a story or two from each of them in the ways that they can speak to what God has done and what he has said and what he has shown them as he has brought them from darkness to light, from death to life. Because God uses circumstances, his word, his people for us to know and to trust him. that this isn't just theoretical for us that believe, that we have tasted and seen that God is good. So before I invite these four to come up to share their testimonies, just a couple of ways that I want to encourage you to engage in this time uh, so that this isn't just simply listening, but this is worship for us. Not worshiping the people's stories, but worshiping the one who gave them the testimony. For one, as you hear them recount some of the ways that God has worked, let's praise God. Let's try not to compare and be like, ah, it didn't happen for me that way. Darn. No, let's praise God for how he's been at work in our midst, in our church, and in these people's lives. And let us, too, remember the ways that God has pursued and been after us and shaped our story to bring us to this moment, to this morning together in all the ways that God has brought us to him. And then lastly, let's remember that our God loves to work in brokenness. You may relate to what some of these people share, and you may not. And that's okay. But whether their stories come in small things that God did over a long period of time, or moments of major clarity, like Paul on the road to Damascus, what you will see over and over again is our God is one who loves to redeem broken things. He loves to bring life where there only used to be death. And for that, that's why we celebrate Easter, isn't it? Jesus who is dead is alive. Our God is not in the tomb. So let's get a little precursor to that this morning, why don't we? And here's some testimonies from our brothers and sisters. So I want to invite up Rebecca and Rhonda and Dean and Rich. Would you give them a hand as they come forward this morning? As they come up, let me pray for them, um, and then we'll turn it over to them. God, thank you so much for this testimony that you have given Paul, and that this is what he chooses to share with this crowd of people. And this morning, thankfully, we have a less hostile crowd here. But we want to be people that hear your words and respond. We don't want to harden our hearts. And so for anyone that's here this morning where either we've been following Jesus for a long time and we're struggling or things just feel mundane right now or or maybe we're here and we have not trusted in you yet, would we respond to your invitation to know you, to let you work in only the way that you can to receive the gospel, the gospel of good news for those who are perishing and yet you have given us abundant life. In your name we pray, amen.
1: Well, good morning, everybody. Can you hear me? Wonderful. Well, my name is Rebecca, and I am very, very grateful to be uh, here with you each this morning. When Matt called me this past weekend and invited me to share, his question was, why do you believe? Why do you believe? And that's the question I want each of you to reflect on this morning as you hear each of our stories of what God has done in our life. And as I thought about, well, why do I believe in in God? Why do I believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus? Why do I believe in the hope of life eternal? It's because he says so <laughs> in his word. Regardless of our experience, God has revealed his will and his good word to us that we can read it every single day. And I do have a story to share of my own personal testimony of God at work in my life, but I want to encourage you that God's truth is always true, no matter our experience. My dad often, uh, he's a preacher up in the Seattle area, he talks about, you know, Mount Rainier, you don't always see it, so down here we can say Mount Hood, you don't always see it, but it's always there. And so I just want to encourage each of you as you hear our stories this morning to know God is always at work, and we can always meet him in his word. In fact, I'm just going to say a quick prayer before I share. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you so much that you love us and that you have revealed yourself to us through your word and that it is constant and it is true and we can build our lives upon your truth. I pray that you would just speak through me and, and everyone who was invited to share and that this time would be truly, truly honoring to you and that you would draw hearts closer to you because of it. So, Lord, we love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's two passages that I wanna share from very quickly this morning, and both have to do with confession. So the big part of my story is that for about 20 years, I held on to a a sin from childhood that kept me in fear and shame and me thinking, and I think the enemy had a big role in this, that I was unlovable, and that if anyone really knew what I had done, I would be rejected, and I would be unloved. And the good news is that's not true, (laughs) and that's not true for any of you as well. In the two passages that the Lord has brought into my life that I want to share with you today, one is from 1 John. So it's 1 John 1, 5 through 10. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And then James, in his letter, in chapter 5, verse 16, says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. So about a year ago, um, I met Jordan. And meeting Jordan really uh, caused me to want to address this, this sin, this fear that I had held on to for so long. And so I started seeing a counselor and uh, was reading books and reading the scriptures, and it was those passages that ultimately led me to realize I need to talk to someone about this. So I talked with my parents, and you know what? They didn't reject me, they didn't turn me away. They embraced me and they loved me. I talked to Jordan, the same thing and i knew in my own experience that because i had confessed this sin that the power of satan was broken and that god could shine his light on something that had been in the dark and as john says in his letter if we say that we're walking with jesus and we have things in the darkness we're not fully experiencing the life that we can with him And so my invitation for you, and God's invitation for you, even more than my own, is to step into the light. If there's anything, anything in your life, from childhood up until this morning, this very moment, that you think, I don't want to talk about that. I don't think anybody would really actually love me if they knew this about me. I just want to tell you that it's not true. God does love you, and that's why Jesus came. And so whether you talk to me or any of us here up on the stage this morning, a friend, a family member, anyone who God puts in your life, confess your sins, and let God shine his light that he might heal you. Thank you. Well,
2: good morning. Uh, my name is Rich, and what I want to share about really is just sort of my story of how learning to trust God um, has been, how my faith has been built up um, and matured over the years and, and how God has revealed himself through me uh, throughout my life. And so a question, question for you all, have you ever had those those moments, right, where you just feel like God is telling you something so clearly that it's undeniable, right? There's... You know, sometimes it feels like they're far, few and far between, but, but those are moments. Um, and so I had one when I was in college. Um, I was a religious studies major. I was, my plan was to go to seminary to be either a pastor or minister. Uh, I wanted to have a big impact on the kingdom. I wanted to do big things, and I was excited. And I remember one moment in particular. I was about halfway through college, and I still remember it really vividly, but heard God very clearly tell me, no. That is not what you're supposed to do. That is not the plan I have for you. And I had absolutely no idea what to do with that. Um, right? I was, I was confused and a little angry. Um, you know, scared. I was like, all right, I'm halfway through college. Uh, like, what do I do now? Right? Uh, but the, the predominant feeling that I had was actually rejection. Uh, I felt a bit like Isaiah saying, you know, Lord, here I am. Send me. And God was like, No, thanks. Um, I'm good. Uh, And so you're like, all right, well, I don't don't understand. I don't understand, right? Uh, And so, you know, I always struggled sort of growing up and and throughout with this feeling of just not being good enough. And now there was this nagging question in my mind, was I not good enough for God either? Uh, So so fast forward, Um, you know, shortly after college, got a job, got married. Uh, and then started uh, to really lean into lay leadership at my church um, through youth ministry and in missions. Uh, and those were great. I, I really enjoyed them. Um, you know, did it for about 15 years, uh, better part about 15 years after, um, and, and loved it, right? But um, more than just being fun for me, it was a way that that I needed to see um, just evidence that, that God was active and he was good uh, through seeing him work in the lives of others because I could see what he was doing in others' lives. I could see the plans he was laying out for them. I just couldn't see it for myself. Uh, and so um, this feeling, this unsettled feeling just started to continue to grow and brew of just, is there, you know, does God have a plan for me at all? Um, you know, and I, and I wish in those moments I could say, yes, I trusted that God, um, that God was active with me and, and had a plan, but, um, but it was unclear. Uh, I was at a men's retreat, and this is years later, um, and we had some downtime to really just spend time with God, and I, it was, I was at a boiling point with this unsettled feeling, and so in that moment, a familiar verse came to mind when I was in this quiet time, and it was Jeremiah 29:11, right, so I, you know, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope in a future, and it's a familiar verse, right, it's a nice verse, it makes you feel good when you read it, but I'm like, yeah, I didn't feel good to me because I'm like, I don't see that plan. All I hear no, is I don't hear anything of like, okay, well, what am I supposed to do then? Um, and I just felt aimless and, and without purpose. And so uh, in that moment, actually, you know, in spending time in Jeremiah 29, it was in the context of that verse that really started to to change my heart. Uh, and in that, right, God's people were exiled in in Babylon, and all they wanted to do was come home. And, you know, they had all these false prophets telling us, yep get ready, have your bags packed, like any day now, it's going to happen. And here comes Jeremiah saying, no, that's not the plan for you. Like, settle in, get comfortable, you're going to be here a while, right? Like, build houses, get married, have kids, like, you will be here for a while. But trust that God is good, and that he is faithful, and that, um, you know, he's, he has a plan, but it's in his timing and not yours. And for me, I needed to, to hear that. Because um, what I was focused on was what my plan was for me and not, not what God's plan was for me. Uh, and in verse 13, right, it says, you know, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And I realized I needed to spend a little less time focusing on what the grand plan was going to be and focus a little bit more on just keeping my eyes on him. Um, it was shortly after that that sort of all those years ago, um, a some of the first kids that were going through that youth group um, started getting a little bit older. They're they're adults now and just really randomly started reconnecting with some of them um in, in just disparate conversations, totally unrelated. And started to hear from them in those conversations of just the impact that I had made on their lives. And there was one in particular, um, as a kid I was always envious of I'm like, man, this guy's faith is amazing. Like I wish I had this kind of faith. Like and I'm mentoring him. But um, but he, he went on to, to be a worship leader and then a missionary. Um, so you know halfway across the world, I get a random message one day from him that just says, you know, I, um, God put you on my heart and just needed to tell you just the impact you had on me. Um, it was a conversation that we had that sparked the trajectory that he's on. The reason he was in ministry, the reason he was a missionary was because of something I had said to him. Um, and I remember that moment very clearly. It was one of those moments where you see it, and it would have been super easy not to engage, but um, but I did. I felt I felt a nudge from spirit, so I moved engaged, I spoke a hard truth to him, and that that sort of changed his trajectory. And what I realized was, you know, that nagging question of, you know, was I not good enough for God to use me? Um, that he had been using me the whole time in really big ways. They just show up in the little moments. Um, and so what I had pictured and what I had visioned was not what God had planned, because he had something better planned. And so I just think to all those moments that each one of us always has, right? But, but as long as I kept my eyes on him and respond with that same, you know, that, that same heart that Isaiah had to send me, um, that I could show up in the moments and, and be used and have the purpose that he intended for me. And I realized that I'll probably never know the grand plan that God has, because um, that's a stumbling block for me. Um, all I need to know is just to keep my eyes on him and trust that he's got it that He has a plan and that all I need to do is just day by day keep my eyes on him and and see where where? He will lead me and it's in those moments that I find peace it's those moments that I find joy um, And honestly, that's those moments where I have trust in him as a result where uh, He continues to reveal himself to me and just who he is uh, and who I am in him So, so.
3: You can tell who the oldest person is because he brought notes. <laughs> Hopefully I don't, so I don't go over. Um, Good morning. My name is uh, Dean. Uh, Matt said earlier, uh, buckle up, right? right? So Betty Davis said it better in All About Eve. She said, fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. So I'm going to tell you my story of, uh, of why I believe uh, And I wrote it down mostly so that uh, I wouldn't go over because I can go on and on sometimes, but here you go. It's 1968, it's the first day of fifth grade. Just after lunch in Bible class, I'm at a new school. Five years previous to this, my mom had, uh, she divorced my alcoholic father after he put her in the hospital for the third time but she's just remarried. And my stepfather, although not a believer, uh, wanted me to have a good education. So he enrolled me in this little Christian grade school just months after they married. The fifth grade teacher, uh, I still remember, her name Mrs. Grimes from Mobile, Alabama, um, had just given the gospel message in Bible class. Now, I'd never cracked open a Bible Right? In fact, I even embarrassed myself by asking what does the word sin mean when she gave the, the invitation to accept Jesus. It was obvious I was the only one of the 13 kids in that little class that wasn't, uh, wasn't a Christian. I remember vividly the moment of clarity upon hearing uh, the gospel message. That's what's been wrong with my life. Think that, I remember thinking this as a little nine-year-old. Um, that's what happens after you die. That's why my real dad left. It made so much sense. I accepted Christ sitting right there, sitting at my desk. And I remember this vividly, this great lifting in my, in my heart, uh, this real sense of hope that my life would, uh, would be better. That was in 1968. It's 1976, a few months before I graduated from a Christian high school. I remember this vividly. My mom, my stepfather and I are in the kitchen and my stepfather has just told me that he's divorcing my mom and leaving. This was not really a surprise. Things had been spiraling for years. And even though my stepfather had accepted Christ a few years prior to this, his drinking and his philandering had caused chaos in our house for years. Yeah, my mom had married another alcoholic. At that moment in the kitchen, I did not ask myself, why did my mom marry another alcoholic? It would be years before I would connect those, connect those dots. Instead, I asked, what's wrong with me? Why did dads leave? I was mad. I was angry at God and uh, at at the whole world. I mean, after all, I was a good boy. I went to church. I got straight A's. I didn't drink. I didn't smoke. I didn't party. But my life was filled with fighting parents Anger, and for those of you who have uh, lived in an alcoholic environment, you know what I'm talking about. You live with a never-ending sense of doom, of when the, uh, of when the next rage will start. Standing, uh, standing at the kitchen table staring at my stepfather, I made a vow to myself at that time I will never drink and I will never leave my family why was my Christian life filled with so much badness it was not what I signed up for in fifth grade As I started college in 1976, just months after my stepfather left, I began a long, futile run from God. I began to occasionally drink and use uh, drugs. Makes sense. It made me feel way better. Over the next nine, nine years, it changed from occasionally to constantly i said uh, futile run from god what's the saying resistance is futile <clears throat> i didn't know it then but i can tell you now that while i'm running from god he's uh He's setting up the chessboard. He's not three moves ahead. He's, he's 15 moves in front of me. Well, I'm running, uh, <clears throat> I mean, hell-bent on destroying myself. God was, uh, he was doing the unthinkable. He gave me uh, my wife, Cindy, who although was a partner in crime and has her own story, she became the uh, primary conduit of God's grace and forgiveness. He gave Cindy and I mothers who prayed uh, ceaselessly. You read that, and until you've had somebody do it for you, um, ceaselessly. Both are mothers. And then, uh, while I'm running, he's planning his proof, plotting against me. Now it's 1986. I've lost my job, wrecked our cars because of my substance abuse. Cindy is packed up and ready to leave. I'm convinced that I'll kill myself with alcohol and uh, with drugs. It was terrible. It's 1986. It's not my father, the alcoholic. It's not my stepfather, the alcoholic, it's me. It's 1986, I'm calling Cindy from a phone booth. I think I'd left the day earlier, her bags were packed, and I'm calling her from a phone booth. I'm at the end. I am finally ready to quit. I have no idea how. I'm sure I'll die before I can quit. I can't ask God for help after i look at what I've done. Some Christian I am. What would God have to do with me? So I remember, I remember telling Cindy on the phone, um, I don't know what to do. Cindy tells me, you aren't going to believe this. But my mom called me today and told me there's this church near us that has a program where we can get help for drugs and alcohol. You've got to be kidding me. You're making this up. A church helped me with my problems. We immediately started going to that church three, four times a week, going to uh, meetings and serving. It was not easy. It It was hard. But I was accepted and loved. I was shown grace. I made and continued to make a ton of mistakes. I was not given a pass. I was expected to grow. I had a lot to learn about substance abuse, about addiction, about relationships, about marriage. It took a lot of time, 37 years and counting. What was crystal clear, the turning point, was that God loved me. I had irrefutable, ironclad proof. He had no intention of saving me from my problems in my life. His plan was to save me through them and in them. Run from God as hard as I can, for nine years. Do everything I can to destroy myself. When I finally run out of gas, there he is. Because it's it's exactly like Alyssa said earlier. Nothing can separate us from the love of God.
4: I'm Rhonda. I don't cry, hardly ever. My family can attest to that, but I can hardly keep myself from crying all morning because to testify about Jesus and his love for us, it just undoes me every time, every time, because his story goes on and on and you all have your stories. You know, Matt shared about Paul's experience that was very dramatic. He saw, then he heard. And I have my own little dramatic story. And I think it's just as dramatic, because he saved me, too. At 17, I found myself at a retreat, a vocational retreat to become a nun. Okay, I was desperate. I was really desperate. By 17. I was such a hot mess inside. On the outside, you wouldn't know it. Um, Raised a Catholic, went to Catholic schools, held it all together, got the good grades. But inside, I was tormented by fear, rejection, low self-esteem. My home wasn't a real peaceful place. My parents didn't get along very well. Um, there was just a lot of, my mom was like, do as I say, not as I do. So there, I was confused. I was really confused by 17. And by this time, I was even questioning whether I wanted to live or not. So when this little retreat came somewhere, nobody knew I went. I went away for a weekend. I'm like, the only way I can find this is i gotta, I got to be a nun. And somebody will be happy about that, right? I mean, geez. And so I went, and Jesus met me in a powerful way underneath the tree very simply i never heard the word born again christian any of that but all alone with jesus there he was and i had an encounter with jesus and he opened up my eyes and i was blind and then i saw and i saw clearly all i had was a bible and a book called hind's feet in high places where I was almost much afraid. That was me, afraid of everything, tormented by fear, horrible fear, paralyzing fear, that I wasn't delivered from really until after my marriage. And those are, that's a whole other story. But I know some of you can identify with that. But there under the tree, Jesus took me to John 15. And he said to me, he said, it's my sacrificial love that's drawing you right now to me. You did not choose me. I chose you. And I no longer call you a slave or a servant. I call you my friend. And I can tell you that Jesus became my friend. I knew about him before, and then I knew him. Because he could meet me right where I was at, a hot, mess, 17-year-old teenager who needed him desperately. And there he was, alive. And I could sing, I know my Redeemer lives. After that, I didn't know where to go. I mean, because what do you do, go home and tell your mom you're not going to become a nun now? And so I went off to college, and I wasn't sure. I never told anybody about the experience. I just took my little Jerusalem Bible to college and thought, I'll figure this out somehow. I'm trying to read it by myself, but I'm so plagued by fear. I shut it up. I'm getting all kinds of like demonic visions and activities. I'm like, where are the angels? You know, come on, this is hard. So I go to college, and all of a sudden, I find a whole bunch of people just like me. In fact, it's the late 70s, so you can imagine. I mean, there are a lot of people running around Birkenstocks and crosses around their neck and finding little people like me that are like, hungry, hungry. So let's like, oh, God, get her on a plan. Get her in this group, that group, any kind of group that was going on on campus, any denomination. I was so hungry, I went to everything everything and anything so that I could learn more about this Jesus that I encountered. And I did, and I I realized this is real stuff. I not only had the encounter, now I had the word of God that backed up what I had. It's both, it's an encounter and his word. It's all of it, his living word in us. And after that, I went home, I thought, well, surely everybody's gotta hear about this, right? I mean, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you want him? Like Matt, I went home thinking this is going to change everybody's life. This is going to change my mom and dad, my sisters, my my whole little Jerusalem that I was in. They're going to know about Jesus. So I was zealous. And I wasn't received quite like I thought it was going to be either. <laughs> so mom and dad thought we got to take her out of this college that's brainwashing her. She's in a cult. Let's bring the priest over to pray. I'm sure some kind of exorcism or something will work. Um, let's get her coach from high school down here to talk sense into her. So at the beginning, you know, when you're on fire for Christ, I don't know if any of you had such a dramatic change, but when you're on fire for Christ, that you go, bring it on. Persecution, opportunity, yeah, you know, my coach comes down, I try to save her. It's like, yeah, you know, I get it. You know, you need to know about Jesus. Seriously, that's how I was. But as time went on in my life, the rejection became at times unbearable because it was who I was going to marry. And then, oh no, he believes too. Now there's double, double trouble. And um, oh my gosh, how I was going to raise my family. Um, My parents, especially my mother, she loved her to death, what could be very verbal and very like, you don't know what you're doing. You're an idiot, basically. And you're going to homeschool your children? She's an educator. How can you do that? You know, it's like, well, Jesus told me to, Mom. Oh, there goes that Jesus thing again, you know. Um, And then it was one of the hardest things for me when that rejection started happening for my family. I thought about Paul in the second part of it. He was flogged. He was beaten. He was placed in prison. I mean, I, I don't know that that level of pain but i gotta tell you i would almost rather someone just flog me and beat me than to deal with the rejection from those that i love the most that was hard that was really hard and was i going to stay the course or was i going to just turn around and go it's not worth it i stayed the course not perfectly not perfectly But, you know, every time those conflicts came up when we made a decision, and one of the hardest ones was when the Lord called David and I to go to the mission field. And my mom called me, and she said this, I don't know what kind of mother could abandon her children. Now, if you're a mom out there, that was a cannonball sent to my gut. She didn't know the tears and tears I cried, the biggest thing to let go of were my girls. Now granted, my oldest one was on the mission field somewhere else. And my youngest one, Kelly, was in college. It wasn't like I was abandoning my four and five-year-old, but it hurt. And that rejection sat in. But I can also tell you, in staying the course, in taking the rejection, And the Lord Jesus, who healed me, delivered me, saved me, brought me out of the depths of hurt and pain, I can say with confidence that he lives and he's alive and what he's done in my life, he wants to do in your life and everyone's life. And don't stop. Stay on the course. I have one scripture to read, um, And by the way, both my mom and dad came to the Lord. My dad on his deathbed, um, the Lord gave me so much love that could only come from him to actually go back and care for them as they were both um, dying from metastatic cancer. And they died six months apart. And I kept them in their home and cared for them and loved for them. But it wasn't so much the words and everything that I said to them. It really was watching my life and the transformation that Jesus did in my family that counted the most. So you can say words, but okay, here we go. So Paul goes on to tell Timothy and gives him wise, wise counsel, as you know, this scripture I love. The confidence of my calling enables me to overcome every difficulty without shame. For I have an intimate revelation of this God, and I do now. And my faith in him convinces me that he is more than able to keep all that I have placed in his hands safe and secure until the fullness of his appearing. Is that our hope? So we're going to go into a communion time, and like Rebecca shared, um, we're here. I always say, you know, hurt people tend to hurt people. Free people tend to free people. And I am all about praying for people to be free. And so if you want to receive prayer during communion, um, Matt has granted permission to get out of your seats. And you can come and get prayer from us. You can um, turn around, ask for prayer for someone else. But he wants to bring freedom to our lives. Amen?